Thank you, Rick. Nancy, turn to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 30. Sometimes there are particular things that, uh, a particular message that you would like to mention uh, from the pulpit. Uh, and sometimes there's just no good way to just kind of work them into the course of a sermon. But I want to mention something. Uh, and I've mentioned this before. And I think everybody knows that we are in the middle of probably an unprecedented political season like we've never seen before. A lot of people have a lot of emotional investment in this political season. Well, let me just remind you of this. No matter who lives in the White House next year, we all still have to live in our house next year. And what I'm saying is this. Whoever lives in the White House, our community still has to thrive. Our church still has to thrive. Our friendships and family still has to thrive. And regardless of the strong emotions that may be uh, invested in the political process, Let's not poison our relationships and friendships over what's going on in the White House. And I've mentioned this before. Nobody from Washington is going to come down here and help coach the Little League team and help the Booster Club and help the Junior Charity League and help with the Awana program and help us with the home. All of us will do that. They don't have a whole lot invested in what we're doing. And so let us not poison what's going on here with their world up there, because I promise you, they're not thinking about us up there. So let's be sure we keep our eye on the goal of living for Jesus, no matter what happens in the circus up in Washington. And so we'll be sure and take care of all this down here. And those who may be a little bit uneasy about who may or may not win the election, regardless of who's in the White House, God's still on the throne, and that's who we serve, right? That's who we serve. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Then all the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran their own foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. So the day was now far spent. The disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go to the surrounding country and villages to buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven 
and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples and set before them to set before them and the two fish he divided among them all so they all ate and were filled then they took up the 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5000 men let's pray together please father we thank you for telling us about jesus And we thank you, Father, for who he is. We thank you for what he can do in our lives, in our church, in our communities. Father, we need to hear from you today. I don't know the needs that may be present here and for those who are watching online, but you do. So I ask that you direct every word, your word, to our hearts and meet us at our point of need. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is not the first time, of course, that we've preached from this passage of Scripture or this miracle. And we could have preached from this miracle and preached from three other passages of Scripture. Because this is the one miracle that is included by all four gospel writers. There are about 30-something miracles recorded in the gospels. All four of them recorded this one. So this one is extremely important. It was extremely notable. They took notice of this miracle as they begin to write about the life of Christ. Several things we can look at. We can't cover all the truths in this miracle in one sermon. Let me just point out some things that may make a difference in our lives and in our church. Number one, in this passage of scripture, As in many passages of Scripture in the Gospels, we see the undeniable attraction of Jesus Christ. In verse 33, the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran their own foot from all the cities. And they came, arrived before him, and came together to him. Now, what set this up was an attempt by Jesus and the disciples to get some much-needed rest. Now, the disciples particularly needed some rest. You turn back to the first part of this chapter, and these men had been sent on a mission two by two to preach in all the cities. They had been in a preaching campaign, and their preaching was open-air preaching, which means when you do open-air preaching, you have to use your outside voice. It takes a lot of energy. They walked, they traveled, they preached, they ministered to hundreds of people. They were exhausted. And Jesus said, you guys look like you could use some rest because once they came together with Jesus, they didn't even have time for lunch. They couldn't even stop long enough to eat because when they got to Jesus, it was busy. And so he finally said, we've got to get away. So Jesus said, let's go to a deserted, quiet place and rest a while. So they got in. The boat, and we've mentioned that boat before. They got in the boat, and they went out. Now, all of you who have been on a lake realize that if a boat's in a lake, you can see it from all around that lake. And, of course, the Sea of Galilee, at that particular point, you've got hills over the lake. And when the boat was in the lake, it was going across about four miles to the other side of the lake on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, about four miles. It's about a 10-mile arc from where these people were around to the other side. 
they begin to go around to the other side. And it said people from the surrounding towns and villages came. How'd that happen? Well, these people saw that Jesus was in that boat. And these people started going to where that, to where that boat was. Well, all the seaside towns, that sea, that waterfront was pretty much the focal point. Well, they begin to see all this activity. And if you saw a hundred people going in one direction, you'd want to know what it was all about. So as these people were attempting to get to Jesus Christ, they were telling others, and they were telling others, and they were telling others, to where finally, by the time Jesus got to the shore, there were 5,000 men. Now, the other gospel writers say this, besides women and children. So even if you were to say, well, every guy may have had an average of one person with him, his wife or a child. Some guys may have been alone. Some guys may have had their whole family with them. We don't know, but we know it was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So we're going to say probably a minimum of about 10,000 people. 10,000 people. You know, a few, few decades ago, a, a new word came into our vocabulary, and we thought we as Americans invented to megachurch. Oh, this was an American thing. We have done something so wonderful. We've invented the mega church where thousands of people come every Sunday. Jesus was doing that from day one. Thousands of people. 10,000 people. Now here is a key point. When people can clearly see Jesus Christ, they will take some interest. And they will come. How do you grow a church? Oh, there's programs and methods and projects and steps and books let me tell you, when people can see Jesus Christ, they'll come. They'll come. They will take some interest. But let's, before we go any further with that point, let's notice how they came. Jesus saw them. Of course, Jesus knows about the crowd. Jesus read the crowd pretty quick, and he, he does that today. He saw them, and he said, he was moved with compassion, and Mark says, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd. This multitude was like sheep without a shepherd. Well, what kind of person is that? Well, without a shepherd, sheep have no direction. Since they have no direction and no leadership, they can't get to the green pastures because the shepherd knows where the pastures are. The sheep do not. Without the direction of the sheep, they don't have clean water to drink because a sheep, even as the shepherd's leading them to the clear water, they'll stop and drink out of a filthy mud hole. The shepherd has to get them out of the filth and get them to the clear water. So without a shepherd, they're without direction, they're without food, they're without clear water, they're without protection. You see, a sheep has no natural protection. And without the shepherd, they have no protection. Since they have no protection, they're without rest. That's the kind of people. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it's another incident. And it says quite clearly, specifically, they were like sheep without a shepherd, but he uses two words. They were weary and scattered. I think the King James says they fainted. And were scattered. They were weary. Now, we talked about sheep without a shepherd in general. Let's get specific. They were tired. They were burdened. 
They were exhausted. They were spent. They were depleted. Does that sound familiar? Maybe that's how we feel. Just, I'm going to say like we say in South Arkansas, just worn slap out. That's the way they felt. They were weary. And they were scattered. Now the word scattered doesn't mean just that they were apart. It's a, it's a technical term when it comes to shepherding sheep. It means they were harassed and mangled by predators. They were constantly harassed by predators. What that means is they were unsettled, anxious, stressed, fearful, and wounded. Those are the people that came to Jesus. That's every one of us without Jesus Christ. They came to Jesus. They had nothing to offer. They didn't come to Jesus with anything to give him, with anything to offer him. All they came was like sheep without a shepherd. And they came with nothing but problems and hurts and heartaches. That's how they came to Jesus. That brings this next point to the forefront. This is why this next point is so important. And that is the inescapable biblical principles for the church. You know it's in there. But you have to look close and look at the whole picture. What does this mean for the church? Well, we start with a basic biblical truth. Number one, Jesus indwells the life of every believer. When Jesus was praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 23, and he talked about the disciples. He said, I in them and you in me, that they may be one, that the world may know that you sent me. But you know what Jesus said? I am in them. I am living in them. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But not I, but listen to this, Christ lives in me. In his prayer for the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, he said that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now that word dwell means to make his home there. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and you'd be rooted and grounded in love because Christ is dwelling in our hearts. So there's the basic biblical principle that we live by. The truth that once we accept Jesus Christ, Jesus lives in here. He said it. The Bible says it. Secondly, God intends for the world to be able to see Jesus in us. He's in us, but God wants the world to see that. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, he speaks that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, a lot of times people get kind of confused about this word predestined. But the word predestined applies to this. He's predestined us to be conformed to what image? The image of his son. That word predestined means God has a plan. And God's plan is that we look like Jesus Christ. That's his plan. That we would take on the image of his son. 
Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. It is enough that the disciple be like his master. What's enough for us? Well, think about all the things we want to accomplish, all the things we want to do, all the things we'd like to acquire. Jesus said, none of that really matters. It's enough that the disciple be like his master. So we have the biblical principle. Jesus lives in us, and the world should be able to see that. Now, let's get specific about what complicates this. Paul reveals this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Passage scripture we've looked at several times, but look at the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing you put off the old man with his deeds. And listen to this. You put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You put on the new man who looks like what? The image of the one who created him. And who would that be? Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. The problem with the folks in Colossae and with Christians, I'm sure, everywhere, let's be honest, is that we got too much clutter going on in our lives and people can't see Jesus. He says, put off all these Boy, did he name some whoppers of some sins here. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. And then he says you should put off all of these. It gets a little bit more familiar now to a lot of folks. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, and stop that line. That's what he said. What does that mean? It means this. Jesus is in here. We have the image of Christ. Jesus is living in here, but all too often we still wear a lot of clutter in our lives and people can't see Jesus because some of these things are still there. Whether anger, wrath, malice, some unclean living, maybe a lie every now and then, covetousness, which is greed. All of these things hide the world from Jesus Christ. Now I said this several weeks ago when we were talking about the Word of God. The Word of God is honest when it comes to the church. It tells you to watch your step. It tells you to watch your mouth. And the reason is, is because the world needs to see Jesus. We talk about all these things. and Folks put the hand on the hip with 
preacher just getting all up into my business. He just wants to run my business. That's the way it is with all them church folks and church just wants to mind my business, tell me how to live. Stop it. There are people who are lost, need Jesus. They're hurting. Where else are they going to see Jesus? They must see Jesus. There's too much at stake to keep being sloppy with our lifestyle and with our language and our heart and our caring. The world needs to see Jesus now. We need to straighten up. And we need to watch our step. And we need to watch our mouth. Because too much is at stake. Because when people see Jesus, they'll take interest. When people see Jesus, they'll be attracted. When people see this other stuff, they're not interested. Well, how did Jesus respond to these people that came to him? Well, that tells us how we should respond. It says Jesus was moved with compassion. This word moved with compassion is the strongest Greek expression of pity, of concern for somebody. He was moved, jolted, shook him up because of how pitiful these people looked. It is used only by Jesus in the parables and about Jesus in the Gospels. And I believe the Gospel writers say this about Jesus seven times. When he saw an individual or people, he was moved with compassion. Now that tells us how we ought to look when we encounter others. But most of us say, you kind of hit a nerve, preacher. I'm just not there yet. I'm not there yet. Well, let's look at an encouraging example of developing faith. You've got to look close here because all of us will say, we're not where we should be, are we? We're a long way from what we should be doing. We start looking at all that clutter in the book of Colossians. We say, man, have I got to get the broom out? But let's get encouraged. We may have a long way to go, but we can get there. Look at the details. First of all, we have to back up to a sermon we preached a couple of Sundays ago. Look at the disciples and where they were. Both Matthew and Luke placed the event that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Jesus was asleep in the boat and the disciples panicked and they asked him, Don't you have a clue? Don't you care that we're dying out here and you're in the boat asleep? Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, let's pass over to the other side. And the point was made, they absolutely had no confidence in the word of Jesus Christ. None. None. Jesus said, we'll get there, and they said, we'll die here. That sounds familiar. They had no confidence. This event happened before the feeding of the 5,000. Now, what does that mean? Well, look close. Look close. Verse 35 says the day was far spent, and disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them something to eat? Doesn't sound like good faith. Scholars think that they probably had about that much amount. 
And that was about, it was just several weeks of what a, a working man would earn. It wasn't enough to feed this many people. So it looks like their faith is kind of faltering, but, but stay with me. And he said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, it was a whopping five loaves and two fish. And here's where we get the message in verse 39. He commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. Well, Jesus said, make them sit down in groups. Doesn't mean anything in the English language, but oh, in the Greek, it means a lot. That word in groups is a specific Greek term. It is a technical Greek term. And it applies only when you're setting the table to sit down for dinner. In other words, make them sit down in groups. The word group here is a specific formation where you have a U-shaped formation of people. And you have a, a lane in the middle. So the people serving dinner could get between them. That's how they served dinner. That's how you served a banquet. You had a, a U-shaped group of people. The table's all spread out, and the servant can go and serve in the middle of that. It was very efficient. Now, Jesus didn't say, you just need to clump them up in little groups. He was using this specific Greek term. So you know what he told the disciples? You tell the people to get ready for supper. What'd they see? Five loaves, two fish, 10,000 plus people. And Jesus said, tell them to sit down and get ready for dinner. And you know what they did? They did it. Can you imagine the risk? They didn't know what was going to happen. You imagine how much food it would have taken. They would have had to see the food. They didn't see that food. They, they had what could be handled in just two hands. And they told the people, sit down and get ready for dinner. They, they had to take a risk. And you know what they probably had to do? They probably had to answer a lot of questions. Sit down and get ready for dinner. Well, what are we having? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Well, where's the food? Well, I don't know that either. But you sit down and get ready for dinner. It's coming. It's coming. You see, they had confidence in the word of Jesus Christ enough that they were ready to stick their neck out and obey him even when they didn't see how he was going to do it. But they were obedient. Because you know what? By now, they believed his word. You see, they came along. And we can too. We may be in pre-kindergarten or elementary school when it comes to our faith, but we can get there. We can get there. If they can, we can. Then, of course, this is the main point of the parable. And that is this. The unlimited potential of our resources when they're given to Jesus Christ. When they're given to Jesus Christ. Now, John says it this way. They came and said, there's a lad here. Little boy. Probably somewhere about pre-teens. Young guy. That's where they got the five loaves and two fish. They ask. I guess they begin to poll the crowd. But it says, go check, see what kind of food we have around here. So they begin to check and they said, we got one guy here and he's got 
five loaves and two fish. He freely gave it to the Lord, even though he had some of our ready-made excuses. Excuse number one, this is not anything. This is not near enough. My little five loaves and two fishes won't make a difference. Now, in the English language, it, it looks bad. In the Greek language, or if you look at what the, the actual situation was, it looks worse. We think of loaves as a loaf. And we think of a fish as a fish. You know what a loaf was? It was a small piece of bread that went into a sack or a basket to take with you. It was more like, watch this, a hush puppy. And the fish was more like a dried sardine. So we're not talking about loaves and fish. We're talking about hush puppies and sardine jerky. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about you could hold it in one hand. And this guy could have said, my little bit's not going to make a difference. And he put it in his pocket. And you know what? He would have been right if he put it in his pocket. But he gave it to the Lord. And despite the humble ingredients. Leave us John that's specific. He doesn't just say loaves. He said barley loaves. That was what poor people ate. That's what poor people ate. By him bringing this out, he was going to show everybody he didn't come from a good family. And he didn't have not many to offer, but what he had to offer weren't of good quality. It was the cheapest form of bread you could buy. He barely had something to give to Jesus Christ. But he gave it. But he gave it. And found out that when you give even a little bit to Jesus, he can do so much more than is humanly imaginable. Now, some pundits have said this miracle wasn't a miracle at all. You know what happened? What happened is this little kid started bringing out his lunch and it shamed all the adults and they started bringing out their food. And you know what they had? They had a potluck right out there and everybody started sharing their stuff. Read the word. The read, first of all, the disciples said in verse 36, they have nothing to eat. In Matthew chapter 14, when they went to see what they had, you know what it said? We only have five loaves and two fish. You can't explain away this miracle. The only way you can see it is Jesus took that little bit that the boy had and he gave thanks and he prayed over it and when he began to pass it out, it just lasted and lasted and lasted and lasted. See, that's what Jesus can do. But only if we give it to him. Only if we give it to him. Three questions in this work. This is where we'll close. Number one, are you one of these sheep without a shepherd? Without the good shepherd, we are helpless and we are hopeless. Period. Without Jesus Christ, man is helpless and hopeless without direction 
Secondly, are others clearly seeing Jesus in our life? Or is there some clutter we need to get out of the way? Jesus in here. If you're a believer, Jesus in here. Are they seeing it? Or we got to clean up some stuff? Thirdly, what are you willing to give to Jesus? What resources are you willing to give to him? Are we willing to freely give what we have? Or watch this. Are we freely willing to give what we are to Jesus Christ? We may not look like much. We may think our talents are limited. We may think our resources are small. We may think our abilities are just not even worth mentioning. If Jesus can take hush puppies and sardines and feed this many people, what can he do with you? What can he do with me? He can do beyond our imagination, but only if we give it to him. Let's stand and sing. What number? Number 85. <clears throat>